0: We're back with the podcast for the September 2009 issue of Respiratory Care. Again, we have a full issue including the papers from the 24th New Horizons Symposium. Sarah, tell us more about the papers in this month's issue.
1: Begin this issue with a paper by Khalid et al. from Detroit, Michigan, entitled, Specific Conductance Criteria for a Positive Methicoline Challenge Test, Are the American Thoracic Society Guidelines Rather Generous? They conducted the study to examine the relationship between FEV1 and specific airways conductance during methacholine challenge testing. 138 patients who had both specific airways conductance and FEV1 measured during methacholine challenge testing between April 2003 and March 2004 were retrospectively evaluated. The tests were done according to the guidelines of the American Thoracic Society, or ATS. Data were first analyzed during linear regression modeling, comparing the data in FEV1 to changes in specific airways conductance. Then the sensitivity and specificity were generated for different cut points using receiver operating characteristic analysis. 38 patients had a positive methacholine challenge test based on FEV1 criteria of the ATS. A decrease of 20% in FEV1 correlated with a drop in 56% in specific airways conductance. Using receiver operating characteristic analysis, the authors were able to find that a cutoff of 51 to 52% performed better. They concluded that the cutoff value of 45% decline in airways conductance to diagnose a positive methacholine challenge, as suggested by the ATS, may be too generous and a decline of 51% from baseline may provide a more accurate measure of airway hyper Next is the paper Feasibility Study of Non-Invasive Ventilation with Helium Oxygen Gas Flow for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease During Exercise by Allen et al. from the Wilford Hall Medical Center. They assessed the safety, tolerability, and efficacy of Heliox and Non-Invasive Ventilation or NIV during exercise in patients with severe COPD. Twelve patients were enrolled. Using a sequential randomized placebo-controlled crossover study design, the patients performed four separate constant work stationary bicycle cardiopulmonary exercise studies at 80% of maximal workload during application of sham NIV, NIV, 60-40 heliox with sham NIV, and 60-40 heliox with NIV. Tolerability, safety, and constant work cardiopulmonary exercise test-determined exercise duration were the primary outcome measures. Secondary outcome measures at peak exercise and iso time included rate of perceived exertion, dyspnea, leg pain, heart rate, respiratory rate, systolic and diastolic blood pressure, tympanic temperature, and oxyhemoglobin saturation. No adverse effects occurred during or after application of NIV, Heliox, or NIV with Heliox. Exercise duration using Heliox with NIV was significantly longer than both Heliox and NIV, but not placebo. Relative to placebo, all treatment arms permitted lower respiratory rates at peak exercise. Heliox with or without NIV was associated with significant improvements in oxyhemoglobin saturation at peak exercise relative to placebo or NIV alone. The authors concluded that adjunctive use of NIV with Heliox during exercise proved both safe and tolerable in patients with severe COPD. Lakeman et al. from the University of Cincinnati present the paper, Accuracy of the Oxygen Cylinder Duration Calculator of the LTV-1000 Portable Ventilator. They evaluated the accuracy of the cylinder duration algorithm of the LTV-1000 Portable Ventilator in a laboratory setting. The LTV-1000 was attached to a test lung. Lung compliance was set at 0.04 liters per centimeters of water, and airway resistance was 5 centimeters of water per liter per second. They tested seven different combinations of ventilator settings, a minimum of two times each. With each setting, minute ventilation was kept at 10 liters per minute. Breath type positive end expiratory pressure and inspired oxygen concentration were varied to evaluate the accuracy of the algorithm across a change of clinical scenarios. The cylinder duration calculation from the ventilator program and manual calculation was determined at each setting and compared to the actual cylinder duration. The authors found that the ventilator algorithm and the manual calculation underestimated the actual cylinder duration by 12 with each test and the range of differences between calculated and actual cylinder duration was 2 to 26 minutes across the seven conditions. Connecting Students to Institutions The relationship between program resources and student retention in respiratory care education programs is by Ari from the Georgia State University. This study investigated the relationship between student retention rate and program resources in order to understand which and to what extent the different components of program resources predict student retention rate. The target population was baccalaureate of science degree respiratory care education programs. With a 63% response rate, this study found a significant relationship between program resources and student retention rate. Financial and personnel resources had a statistically significant positive relationship with student retention. The mean financial resources per student was responsible for 33% of the variance in student retention, while the mean personnel resources per student accounted for 12% of the variance in student retention. Program financial resources available to students was the single best predictor of program performance on student retention. The author concluded that respiratory care education programs spending more money per student and utilizing more personnel in the program have higher mean performance in student retention. Oxygen Therapy in the Neonatal Care Environment is by Walsh et al. from Children's Hospital, Boston. The use of oxygen in the treatment of neonates with respiratory distress has been reported for more than a century. Oxygen therapy is generally titrated to one or more measures of blood oxygenation and administered to reverse or prevent hypoxia. Individual responses to oxygen therapy vary greatly depending on the particular case of hypoxia and the degree of impairment. Despite this focused purpose, oxygen administration in this patient population has been complex. The longer we deliver this drug, the more we discover its beneficial and detrimental effects. New and innovative ways to deliver and monitor this therapy have improved outcomes. Despite this vast experience, there still remain some unanswered questions regarding the use of oxygen in the neonatal environment. Nonetheless, oxygen is a major staple in our treatment arsenal for neonates. Next is the paper, Surfactant Replacement Therapy in the Neonate Beyond Respiratory Distress Syndrome by Dunn and Dalton from the University of Michigan. Surfactant replacement therapy is a life-saving treatment for preterm infants with respiratory distress syndrome, a disorder characterized by surfactant deficiency. Repletion with exogenous surfactant decreases mortality and thoracic air leaks, and is a standard practice in the developed world. In addition to respiratory distress syndrome, other neonatal respiratory disorders are characterized by surfactant deficiency which may result from decreased synthesis or inactivation. Two of these disorders, meconium aspiration syndrome and bronchopulmonary dysplasia, might also be amenable to surfactant replacement therapy. This paper discusses the use of surfactant replacement therapy beyond respiratory distress syndrome and examines the evidence to date. De Blossy presents a comprehensive review entitled Nasal Continuous Positive Airway Pressure for the Respiratory Care of the Newborn Infant. Nasal continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, is a non-invasive form of respiratory assistance that has been used to support spontaneously breathing infants with lung disease for nearly 40 years. Following reports that mechanical ventilation contributes to pulmonary growth arrest and the development of chronic lung disease, there is renewed interest in using CPAP as the prevailing method for supporting newborn infants. Animal and human research has shown that CPAP is less injurious to the lungs than is mechanical ventilation. The major concepts that embrace lung protection during CPAP are the application of spontaneous breathing at a continuous distending pressure and avoidance of intubation and positive pressure inflations. A major topic for current research focuses on whether premature infants should be supported initially with CPAP following delivery or after the infant has been extubated following prophylactic surfactant administration. Clinical trials have shown that CPAP reduces the need for intubation, mechanical ventilation, and surfactant administration, but it is still unclear whether CPAP reduces chronic lung disease and mortality compared to modern ventilation techniques that use lung protective approaches. Despite the successes, little is known about how best to manage patients using CPAP. It is also unclear whether different strategies or devices used to maintain CPAP play a role in improving outcomes in infants. Nasal CPAP technology has evolved over the last 10 years, and bench and clinical research has evaluated differences in physiologic effects related to these new devices. Ultimately, clinicians' abilities to perceive changes in the pathophysiologic conditions of infants receiving CPAP and the quality of airway care provided are likely to be the most influential factors in determining patient outcomes. Mechanical ventilation of the neonate, should we target volume or pressure, is by Dunn and Boone. For more than 40 years, conventional mechanical ventilation has been used for the treatment of neonatal respiratory failure until relatively recently this was accomplished with time-cycled pressure limited ventilation using intermittent mandatory ventilation earlier attempts at volume targeted ventilation were largely ineffective because of technological limitations the advent of microprocessor based devices gives the clinician an option to choose either target variable to treat neonatal patients this paper reviews the principles of each and the accumulated evidence Beddett and Craig from Children's Hospital Boston present extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for neonatal respiratory failure. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO, is a form of cardiopulmonary bypass adapted for long-term use. Blood is drained from the patient, pumped through an artificial lung or membrane where gas exchange is augmented, and then re-infused back to the patient. ECMO provides support for the neonate with severe respiratory failure so that potentially deleterious ventilator settings can be minimized and the disease process given time to resolve. Survival rates and long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes in newborns supported with ECMO for hypoxemic respiratory failure remain favorable, although the use of ECMO has decreased in the most recent decade because of the availability of alternative treatment options. Finally, we have the paper Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia by Deacons from Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia (BPD) is the most common chronic respiratory disease that results from complications related to the lung injury during the treatment of respiratory distress syndrome or develops in older infants when abnormal lung growth occurs. The definition and classification of BPD have changed since the original diagnosis was established many years ago. The incidence of BPD continues to grow as lower birth weight infants continue to survive. The primary focus of all treatment associated with premature infants is on prevention of BPD surfactant replacement, invasive and non-invasive ventilation techniques, management of the patent ductus arteriosus, cautious management of oxygen therapy, caffeine, inhaled nitric oxide, and changes in delivery room practices have been studied to assess their effects on the development of the disease. Other strategies used to reduce the long-term effects of this chronic lung disease include bronchodilators, inhaled and systemic steroids, nutrition management, and selected ventilator strategies. The prevention of BPD is targeted at minimizing effects of this pulmonary disease. In preventing the long-term sequelae associated with its treatment.
0: I'm back with some commentary on the papers in this month's issue of the journal. Methacholine challenge testing is commonly performed where there is a suspicion of asthma. Khalid et al. question whether the specific conductance criteria of the ATS for a positive methacholine challenge test are too generous. ATS guidelines suggest that a 45% drop in specific conductance, which roughly corresponds to a 20% drop in FEV1, is consistent with a positive test. However, as the authors point out, there is a lack of evidence to support this cutoff. Indeed, the authors' data suggest that the ATS-suggested cutoff value of forty five percent may be too generous, and they propose a decline of fifty six percent from baseline as a more accurate measure of airway hyperresponsiveness. However, before considering a change in this practice, further studies of subjects with and without asthma should be done. As Menino points out in an accompanying editorial, An alternative approach could include a decrease in either specific conductance or FEV1 to be more sensitive or a decrease in both measures to be more specific. In patients with COPD, non-invasive ventilation and helium-oxygen gas mixtures or Heliox diminish ventilatory workload and improve exercise tolerance. In their study, Allen et al. evaluated whether noninvasive ventilation in combination with Heliox may have additive effects on exercise tolerance in severe COPD. They found that this combination was both safe and well tolerated, but they were unable to demonstrate efficacy. This may have been the result of a small sample size, but we cannot know for certain until larger studies are conducted. It is also possible that this combination is a benefit for some patients, but not others. As Alcana points out in his editorial, whether the use of non-invasive ventilation with Heliox in pulmonary rehabilitation becomes widespread or is used to treat individual patients remains to be seen. Two potential concerns arise from this combination. First, although the cost of Heliox is not prohibitive, it does add to the expense of pulmonary rehabilitation. In addition to the gas, equipment for Heliox administration will need to be purchased. It will be necessary to assure that the equipment for combined Heliox and non-invasive ventilation is compatible. Second, this potentially adds to the complexity of pulmonary rehabilitation. Although the skills required are not terribly formidable, Therapists working in pulmonary rehabilitation will need to develop them for safe use of Heliox in combination with non-invasive ventilation. Critically ill patients are commonly transported outside the intensive care unit for diagnostic studies using a portable ventilator. One of the worst disasters that can occur is to run out of oxygen. Blakeman et al. evaluated the program to calculate oxygen cylinder duration on the LTV-1000 portable ventilator. They found that the actual cylinder duration averaged 12% longer than the cylinder duration estimated by the algorithm of the LTV-1000. In an accompanying editorial, Stevenson and Haas state that prudent clinicians should consider other things in addition to the number of cylinders required when preparing a patient for transport. First, patients should be evaluated on the transport ventilator prior to the actual transport. Second, the nature and duration of the transport should be considered for its potential effect on the patient's breathing pattern. Finally, potential delays should be anticipated and considered when establishing the number of oxygen cylinders that will be required. Educators will be interested in the paper by Ari regarding the relationship between program resources and student retention in respiratory programs offering a baccalaureate degree. This paper is important because respiratory care education programs are being held accountable for student retention and increasing student retention is necessary because the profession suffers from a shortage of qualified therapists. Ari investigated the relationship between student retention rate and program resources and found that the personnel and financial resources available to students were the single best predictors of student retention. Respiratory care programs spending more money per student and utilizing more personnel in the program have higher student retention. This month we are pleased to present papers from the 24th New Horizons Symposium, which were presented at the 2008 International Respiratory Care Congress in Anaheim, California. The topic of the New Horizons Symposium was Neonatal Respiratory Care. We are pleased with the leadership that Peter Bettett and Stephen Dunn provided as co-chairs of the symposium. Oxygen is an obligate therapy for the neonate with respiratory failure, but long gone are the days of incubators for oxygen administration. As Walsh et al. describe in their paper, oxygen administration in neonates has become complex. There are concerns of retinopathy of prematurity and chronic lung disease with oxygen therapy in neonates. Thus, the benefits must be weighed against the risk. There still remain unanswered questions regarding the use of oxygen in the neonatal environment, which should provide research opportunities for the readers of respiratory care. One of the major advances in respiratory care in the past 15 years has been the use of exogenous surfactant therapy for premature infants with respiratory distress. Repletion of exogenous surfactant is a standard practice in this patient population. As discussed by Dunn and Dalton, meconium aspiration syndrome and bronchopulmonary dysplasia might also be amenable to surfactant replacement therapy. Just as oxygen administration in neonates has become complex, so has CPAP. The current state-of-the-art for CPAP is described by de Blasi. CPAP is particularly attractive in the current era of lung protection. However, it is unclear whether CPAP reduces chronic lung disease and mortality when compared to modern ventilation techniques that use lung protective approaches. An area of controversy is the use of volume-controlled versus pressure-controlled ventilation in neonates. This is addressed by Dunn and Boone. Early attempts of volume-controlled ventilation were mostly ineffective due to technological limitations, but microprocessor-based ventilators allow the clinician an option to choose either volume control or pressure control in neonatal patients. As discussed by Bennett and Craig, ECMO is an important treatment option for the neonate with severe respiratory failure. Survival rates and long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes in newborns supported with ECMO for hypoxemic respiratory failure remain favorable. The use of ECMO has decreased in the most recent decade, primarily because of availability of alternative treatment options such as inhaled nitric oxide and improved ventilatory strategies. The incidence of bronchopulmonary dysplasia continues to grow as lower birth weight infants increasingly survive. As presented by Deacons, a number of strategies have been explored to prevent BPD. The prevention of BPD is targeted at minimizing effects of this pulmonary disease and preventing the long-term sequelae associated with its treatment. In this month's case report, Vasu et al. describe a 64-year-old patient with acute fibrous and organizing pneumonia caused by decetabine. The teaching case is by Raja Gopala et al. and describes an unusual case of non-resolving pneumonia. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.